Hello, everyone, and welcome to our next edition of the podcast, Totally Rewarding. Uh, today, I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend that is Mark Beatty, uh, who is the SVP and Global Head of Total Rewards at Paramount. Um, was CBS, CBS Viacom, now Paramount Global? Am I right in that, Mark? Uh, that's right. Uh, CBS, and then Viacom, CBS, and then Paramount. That's right. Fantastic. Um, and so today, Mark and I are going to be discussing, obviously, a number of themes. Um, we've been told in the feedback of the podcast is I have to lighten it up. Uh, we get quite, we got quite technical uh, on the last uh, round. Um, and so my job today is to inject a bit of humor into the profession. Uh, so no pressure, Mark. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I, I really want to start with, Mark, for those that don't know, is uh, comes from the legal background uh, and going from legal legal counsel into compensation, executive compensation, and obviously now as head of total rewards. And it is something that's not on it's not uncommon. Um, it's probably not as common as I'd expect it to be. Bring it bear in mind the skill set that. Uh, legal professionals bring into the game but Mark how did you make that my first question for you is I'm interested in that transition from law into compensation um, how did you make that transition how did you find it um, well for one thanks for thanks for having me on um, I, I think I started out as I wanted to be a litigator in law school hmm. um, and then I did a clerkship and really didn't enjoy the the paper pushing nature of it and I was I saw a future where I was never in the courtroom and I was just doing non-stop depositions oh really um and then I, I went and got my tax law degree and at the same time my father uh was kind of promised the sun moon and stars and then he was let go kind of unceremoniously after he'd done all the heavy lifting hmm. in an a deal and I kind of really developed an interest in deferred comp and severance and all these things that he was promised that he didn't receive. Oh, wow. Um, and I kind of made that the focus of my learning um, uh, at getting my my tax tax degree. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of got into that area and I actually started off really doing more benefits law. Um, you know, I was doing these 420 transfers where you, you know, you, when people actually mm. had funded pension plans at the beginning of this century <laughs> and how you would allocate those funds to pay for retiree medical and mm. things like that. And, uh, and then over time, I just kind of gradually got into executive comp from the legal side because it was just interesting mm. and it kind of ticked more of those. It was more intellectually interesting to me. Um, and then right around the housing crisis, the, the recession mm. in 2008, um, you know, I was working for a large law firm and I was doing well there. And I just, at that point, I didn't have another, you know, the, the recession kind of moved mm. the, the needle in terms of when you, your path to partnership. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'd, I'd always wanted to work in house at some point in my career. And I decided that was as good a time as any. And I uh, moved, made the move to CBS and was exec comp lawyer there for a while. Mm -hmm. And I think what really made me want to get to HR is I always felt like if you think about the comp, it's kind of like an assembly line, like they're building cars. Yeah. I always felt like I was the guy in the white lab coat at the very end with the clipboard saying, no, no, <laughs> no. Okay. And I, uh, and I always thought, you know, if I had that seat at the table mm. at the design stage, it, I could really influence and have a hand in 
the final product from start to finish. And so that really made me want to get into into the HR side. And I had an opportunity and I, I took it and it was the best move I ever made. And then gradually, you know, I kind of took on more and more special projects that had a benefit slim, kind of leveraging that old learnings that I had from the legal side, mm-hmm. um, where I, I had this kind of crazy unique skill set. And um, at least for, for, you know, for CBS. And so that's kind of how I got into uh, heading up Total Rewards. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, it's a fantastic story. Um, and yeah, I, I think yeah, it's, it's a, I like your description there of being that sort of the, the inspector at the end of the line saying no. I mean, often it, our profession is, is you know, people point fingers and say, oh, you guys, it's the, you're the no police, particularly around exec comp. It's always what you can't do rather than what you can do. Um, and a lot of clients actually tend to look for that now in terms of I want someone who can come up with commercial decisions and make commercial, not just tell us what we you know, what the, the limitations are, but tell us how we can sort of bend and, and flex things as far as possible. Um, but yeah, no, I like the idea of your motivation to get into that. But no, I was intrigued. And, and as I say, I, I've, I've seen it sort of more and more in the profession of, of, of you know, legal professionals, particularly going into executive compensation when there's such a shortage of talent in exec comp, um, not just in the tri-state area, but I'd say across the US um, yeah so I'm sure it will be a continue to move but I, I, I as I say I like your motivations but I mean since you've been in the world of total rewards you've, you've brought in your benefit skills your executive comp skills you've now rounded that out in total rewards I, I, I'm keen to ask now you've done that kind of investor degree let's let's get into the get that seat at the table what is the best thing about being in this profession in our profession what do you think the best thing is Mark I, th- I think it's really the impact that you feel that you can make on like the day-to-day lives of, of employees and people. Mm. And so much of what we do, you know, putting food on the table through their pay, mm. you know, protecting the family's health through benefits, mm. protecting the financial wellness through retirement benefits and financial counseling, you know, the whole suite of benefits that are offered, mm. you know, really kind of are play a big part of that employee's life, you know, um, from, from children to retirement to potentially retiring medical, if that's offered, Mm. you know, it's a, it's a, it's almost a full life cycle. Um, and so it's, there's a monumental impact we have on employees and having the ability to impact that in a positive way through benefits and pay that is, structured and is rewarding and you know enables people to have a, a great career and then also a great retirement hmm. and to really enjoy themselves along the way that is like that's what gets me out of bed and makes me excited to go to work every day well i think that's a, i think that's a very good answer i think yeah it, it would and there's the sort of the playing devil's advocate here um i think it's a privilege to be able to actually have a personal positive impact um, on not just someone's career, but actually, as you say, their take home, their their family situation, their family's well-being, both financial and and sort of uh, physical uh, well-being. But the the devil's advocate would say, you know, when you're working in a business, if, if times are tough, if the business performance is down, if there are layoffs happening, um, where you know bonus round becomes non-existent, where LTIP programs are in the water or underwater. Um, then also the figure gets pointed at you guys in, in perhaps a, a different way, um, which I imagine is also quite hard to deal with. 
it is, you know, and, and no job is perfect. No company, <laughs> no company is perfect. No. And I think we all as, and just speaking here as an, as an individual, right. Mm. As an individual professional, I think we always evaluate, or at least I have always evaluated always, there's always a kind of the, the, the metaphorical scale where mm. you have the pros on one side and the cons on the other. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've always found that the con, the pros side of the scale vastly outweighs the cons. Mm. And so for me, I understand it's the nature of the job. Uh, and, and, and some of that just comes with the territory, but I don't, you know, I don't allow that to outweigh the positive impacts that I feel about my job. And, and, and the thing that I kind of, my North star is when things are, mm. you know, a little darker, as you, as you mentioned, mm. you know, so much of that is really outside of like our control, of course. you know, yeah. you know, there's things that we do certainly that impact stock price, mm. but we don't have the levers that really drive stock price. That's not within total rewards is, um, you know, bailiwick. Um, so, and we, and we certainly don't, um, you know, you know, there's other factors that you mentioned as well that are just really, you know, we have a, we have a small impact, but we don't really drive that result, good or bad. No. And I just try to remember that what's really resonating is that these are people that are frustrated because like we say, it's their pay and it's their take home and it's their retirement. Yep. And of course, when it's underperforming, people are, are upset by that. And I just try to understand it's frustration at the result, not frustration at me personally. No, exactly. I think that's a very good, again, a very good way of putting it. You know, you often front and center where, where whether it's line managers are teeing off because they're losing staff because you're not paying enough or your pay grades are maybe sort of five, 10% under, under market rate, but you know, sometimes your hands are tied. But they say often you face the, you know, when it does affect people's bottom line, um, they want to point a finger somewhere. Um, and you guys, you know, inevitably, sometimes that let falls at your door. But um, I mean, yeah, I was going to, you know, I've asked you what the best thing is. What's the worst thing? The worst thing about doing what we do? Uh, I'm intrigued. Well, worst is probably a hard word, isn't it? Let's say what's the, the sort of the most challenging thing? I think the most challenging thing for me has always been that I don't control the data. Hmm. All right. So I'm, I head up an organization that's heavily reliant upon the data. Yeah. You know, are they in the right title? Because the right title could mean eligibility for certain pay and benefit levels. Mm-hmm. You know, are they in the right department? Because that impacts where the, the cost is, you know, attributable to. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, and then of course, obviously, is the salary right? Is the bonus target right? You know, all of these kind of data points. And, you know, when you deal in the, when you deal with large amounts of data and humans are involved, you're going to have some mistakes. Yeah. I mean, that's going to happen. And, but there's a, you know, but you, you expect there to be a certain amount that is digestible and it's reasonable and it's correctable. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but when you don't have control of the data and you're not the one that oversees the process between, between how it's entered how it's audited, how it's, you know, stored, hmm. um, but yet you're relying upon it. It's, it's really frustrating when there are, you know, issues, uh, systemic or otherwise, because when that happens, you know, of course, particularly in comp, we're the tip of the spear. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if it goes well, it's, it's great. Hmm. 
and it goes well most like 99 percent of the time but that one time it doesn't it could be as something that's data and you know garbage in garbage out it's nevertheless uh... they look to you um and um and, and that that's probably the worst thing is that yeah it, it's it's tough when you have to rely on data for which you have no control over mm. um no i think that's you know, a, I, I think it, it's it's the constant um the thorn of many uh so total rule professional is the access and availability of accurate data or data from my side as a brit um and I'm staggered, you know, in 2022, and it's it's a topic that I've been talking around with, you know, for, with people for over a decade now. And I, there's some of the the war stories that I hear, Mark, around comp professionals having to, you know, it should be relatively straightforward. If say if you're the head of comp um, for a, let's say an investment banking division of a of a large investment bank. Um, trying to actually, and you sit there going, right, okay, now I need to do, we need to obviously some, let's let's work out how many people are in the investment banking division uh, of this investment bank, because obviously then I know how many people I'm dealing with from a comp round perspective. Trying to get that very basic question answered of how many people the investment bank actually employs on a full-time or an FTE equivalent, um, I mean, that's a that's a, a sort of a nightmare in itself. I mean, having to go and the amount of people I've spoken to, they have to go up to whether it's the CEO or whoever's very, you know, so sitting there from an executive perspective talking about compensation expenditure and you have to go up to them going, I've got a bunch of data here, but I'm pretty sure it's not right. And I can't even answer how many people we really actually employ that would fit into the front office. You know, that's a frustration. And I'm still staggered about how it just seems to be impossible, the larger the business, impossible to really get accurate information. Um, that, yeah, as you say, you guys are the tip of the spear and often it can put you in pretty awkward situations if you, if you can't get this kind of accurate information. Yep, 100%. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important to really kind of centralize that. You know, I think you have, I think, my guess is, if I had to guess why that's the case, hmm. I think you have a lot of companies that probably have um, at least data is decentralized, and it yeah. could be as a result of various M&A deals yeah. where it's kind of pieced together, yeah. or or there's different payrolls, and payroll's not centralized, and so the data that's associated that feeds the payroll is also decentralized, and it just requires four times the effort to get to, to do anything. Yeah. And, you know, if you really talk to people that are in day in, day out, comp, try pricing a job across an organization where there's four data sets that have to be accessed every time. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, that that, that I find, yeah, it, it's... Yeah. It, the, I would it, be surprised if data is not the number one frustration. Uh, and it's not so much inaccurate data, it's just more, it's a combination of, of the access, the... Hmm management oversight of the data um and, and uh you know and uh, and 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 just the accuracy sometimes and that, yeah that's the thing it's like you know but, yeah when you do benchmarking um i'm still staggered that it, it does leave the market open for someone to come along and sweep it all up with a sort of a you know a silver bullet solution um you know when you, you know if you if you're trying to sort of and you know some of the let's say the survey providers without naming names um you know, getting access to some form of uh, market, you know, benchmarking information, you know, more often than not, it's six to nine months out of date by the time you get it. 
um, you know, why can't, why isn't there a firm out there that can sit there and say, right, if, if I want to know, you know, a, 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 some sort of salary guidance and salary bands across technology firms of the top five tech firms in the US of say, yeah, these 30 job titles, why can't I get a rough or some benchmarking data to say what salaries people are paying? It should be, you shouldn't be difficult, but it, it is impossible to sit because more by the time you get data, more often than not, I would say it's out of date. Um, and, you know, so how do you price up roles? How do you attract and retain talent? Because you've always got someone going, well, I know that such and such down the road is doing exactly the same job and they're getting 15% more than I am, um, particularly in a market like this. So I'm just still staggered that there isn't a silver bullet solution. Or maybe there is. Maybe you know one, Mark. I don't know. Well, I mean, one of the things you do is you, you go out and you, you know, if it's a really big job and you and you, and you know that the data is is stale, mm. you, know, you, can always, you can always, you know, add a 3% or a 5% bump on it mm. but that's you know that's throwing darts uh the other way to do it is to try to work with one of the big consultants and 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 to do some kind of like a quick like a quick hit like almost like a pulse survey for a single job mm. with companies that you know and that's a, that's a way sometimes but of course you know you got to have you got to have companies willing to share that data <laughs> exactly that, yeah that also want that your information in an anonymized manner and you got to have enough companies so that you can actually generate that report without being able to back into it right well, exactly. um, yeah and, and and that's and that's tricky that's that that's tricky but you know that's that's one way to try to get around that it's i just think again i just don't think there's there's the perfect solution to it and i just think it puts pressure on particularly in tight markets and you know everyone's talking about this this kind of ongoing uh, scrap for talent uh, particularly in new york um you know, it, and you gotta you gotta be really wary about that too. Like because we are in this kind of this war for talent that you hear a lot. Mm. You know, you get people that, you know, there as you as you well know, there's an art and a science to pricing a job, yep. right? There's data, but then there's the and that's the that's the science piece. Mm. It's factual. This is the data, mm. and then there's the art, which is this person is here in their career, and so that should be close to the P25 instead of the P50, mm-hmm. or and then there's the internal considerations, like how does this person slot within our organization, and is it appropriate for them to be here versus there mm. within our own internal organization? So there's external parity, there's internal parity. So that's part of the art, you know, the art part of the job. And then the, what's really incumbent on the comp professionals is, is mm. you got to really listen to the information, but you can't take it as gospel. No. Because I've encountered situations where I've said, I've had someone say, oh, this is new hire candidate. You know, they need to be paid this in salary. It's like, yeah, they're coming from a company that's a private company that doesn't offer any equity. Yeah. And so their comp package is cash and bonus. They go public, mm. it's going to be cash, bonus, and equity. So, yeah, there's going to be less cash, but we're still paying an appropriate level. Mm. And so sometimes it's just that education. you got to watch out because people throw out like, Oh, I'm making X amount of salary. Mm. Yes, but it's a different pay mix. So you got to look at the total package. Yeah, clearly the cash is a consideration, but it can't. Again, it can't just be gospel. You really have to evaluate as much as you can. Mm. Obviously, there's laws against asking and and, and directly asking candidates how much what they're making, but particularly when they volunteer that as part of the negotiation for what they want, you have to really dig in and really understand 
how they're being paid now and how that compares and not just on a component by component basis. It's, uh, yeah, I think, the, again, you know, it, it's, as you say, it's taking those multiple points um, of information and not taking it as gospel. I think, you know, we put out a salary survey at the start of the year um, based on real-time data of, of, you know, people obviously talking to us about their expectations, talking to us about their earnings um, in the last 12 months, and equally the offers they're receiving either via us or via other companies. And it gave us a sense of, you know, we were able to create ranges out of that of what the market would generally offer for different levels of compensation benefits professionals. Um, and the amount of feedback, people are like, well, that's not the data I received, you know, when they, when the, whether they went to one of the big providers. It's like, well, look, I mean, there's a big difference between the data that companies will tell you and what they're actually willing to pay. <laughs> and, and that's the sort of the dirty secret of, like, I'll, I'll, I, you know, I'd love to say I, you know, I, I can sit there and, and, and look at sort of, you know, adverts placed out there and what the providers put out and say, yeah, that's accurate. It's more that you know I, I know what the market will pay, and and therefore that just is what it what it is. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point of how you manage those. But in terms of moving on, Mark, um, in t- we've touched on some sort of innovative ideas about you know how we how we do various things or how you do various things. But what are you hearing out there in terms of innovative comp practices? Something that you, that sort of caught your attention, caught your eye recently? Anything you'd sit there and go, wow, that's actually quite different, quite new. I don't know that, I guess innovative may be the wrong word. I would say for me, at least, you know, in terms of what I find most interesting right now is how companies are going to be navigating this whole issue with inflation. Mm. Uh, And with inflation being, you know, as high as it's been, at least in the U.S., um, you know, since the early 80s, (laughs) since the early Reagan years. Um, and, and, And how do you... How do you navigate that? You know, when you have a pay, if you have a pay for performance culture and your merit and your merit process is typically designed to provide some, you know, some small measure of performance differentiation, um, you know, how do you manage that at a time when, you know, inflation is in excess of 8%? Well, you, you, you don't just give nine percent pay rises. That's that's not yeah. the that's not the solution, unfortunately. Right, and and, and you hear that, like, and, and and you and you get the sense that employee expectation is like, well, if inflation's eight percent, you know, I should at least get eight percent, if not a little bit more, because the eight is like a cola, and then everything else is above that. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's frust, you know, I guess not frustrating is the wrong word. It's 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 understandable. But what people don't recall is that merit budgets have been, at least in the U.S., have been, you know, three plus percent mm. for more than a decade. Yeah. But we've also, but that's been the case in this period of historically low inflation. I mean, we had central banks that were basically saying the interest rate is zero percent. Literally, here's free money. So <laughs> take free money, yeah. go. So nobody was saying, oh, well, you know what, merit should be half a percentage point since inflation is so low like it's not a it's not a cola it's a merit right but but what works for you then right where inflation is like no Hmm. and there's been this accelerated wage growth through merit increases for more than a decade Hmm. when there's been historically low inflation now we're on the other side of the coin but it's not one-sided you know it's not like that you get the benefit of the low inflation, but you get, but then when it's high inflation, you get the benefit of the high increase that matches it. So, you know, that's an interesting like take on things. I think. Okay. 
Yeah, again, that's, I mean, you touch on a very interesting point, but um, yeah, it, the problem is in, in you know whether it's a UK or US thing, a lot of firms used to call it inflation-based pay increases. You know, so you, you get to your annual sort of a year-end review, and you'd say, right, we're giving you a three percent, yeah, you three know, percent pay increase based on market rate and inflation. Um, and so as soon as inflation goes, because yeah, three percent, everyone can sit there, or two to three percent, people can stomach. But then when you get to 9%, no company is going to sit there and say, we're going to give you an inflation-based pay increase because 9% just, it just blows the money out of the water. It blows the, the sort of your fixed costs. And I think that's the thing. People just got used to um, receiving a annual pay increase, even, you know, even if it was very, very minimal, but based yeah. on inflation. And then for companies to turn around and go, well, we're not doing that anymore. Um, or yeah. <laughs> so you can't, yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, um, but yeah, so my cost of living has gone up, but you're not going to pay me in line with that. And like, you know, for, if a company's got, you know, 34, it's, yeah, some of these, PwC came out of the woodwork in the UK, I think, and said, oh, we're going to give everyone uh, between a, I can't remember, it's maybe between five and 8% pay increase in line with inflation. I mean, it kind of puts the pressure on a lot of other firms to follow suit, but it's pretty rogue. I mean, actually, to be fair, all PwC or some of the consulting firms do will just wheel it into their charges anyway, so they'll probably recoup that money. Um, but I've said it now; I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's yeah, it's a it's a difficult one in terms of innovative reward practices. How to sort of base out you know kind of pay increases in line with inflation? But yeah, it's a it's a difficult one. But um, I think there's been some in, in one thing I was going to mention. I think there's been some innovation in like how in companies are, are are tackling this war on talent mm. you, know, you hear that new hires are demanding you know there's the concept of breakage yeah. breakage has always been there right you leave a job you leave money on the table yeah. oh a bonus that's payable in four months or mm. you know x hundred thousand dollars of equity compensation that vests over three or four years mm. and it's always been a negotiation about how much breakage mm. am i willing to accept both for the employee side and for the employer. And I think now what we're seeing is that new hires are demanding higher pay and they're also demanding a bigger chunk of the breakage yep. be absorbed into the new deal. And so, you know, so you, of course you're seeing sign-on bonuses and you're seeing upfront equity grants, but how do you bake into like these higher salaries without permanently inflating? Because we all know as soon as you put the put the salary here you're never going to decrease that salary no you're fixing it for the life of that employee and so there's been some innovation like yeah, obviously there's been more use of sign-on bonuses and things like that but mm. you know you hear things or you hear ideas about like hot job premiums yep or if, if someone's in a very hot job you say look your base salary is this and at least for the next 12 months you're going to be paid this extra premium on top of that mm. but we reserve the right to look at that on the um, you know every year hmm. like and that. respond to the market so it, it, there's there's a lot of things you hear about hmm. uh, i'm not sure how much of that is actually being put into practice but i've heard some pretty interesting ideas um hmm. so um hmm. that's a... there's a lot, of, a lot of good thought out there about how you combat combat this kind of war on talent I, it's uh, it's an interesting one, yeah, because I think and um, I think it was the the CEO of BlackRock came out, or you know, one of the heads of the, or one of their divisions, you know, it's like this this price war has to end at some point, you know, you can't you can't keep pushing, particularly in tech, um, just the boundaries because okay, this firm will pay ten percent more, this firm will pay twenty percent more, and you, you just lose sight of the reality. 
I, I, I don't know what happened to the concept of being paid what you're worth, but it's just <laughs> gone. It's just gone completely out the window. Um, in the sense of, it, you know, people do well if we just pay more, if we offer more stock or more of an upfront grant, we'll land better people. And I think you, it's it's completely skewing the market to a point where, at some stage, there will companies will just go, no, that's it, that's our ceiling. Um, until you have a bunch of businesses define the ceiling, you know, you'll still have people going, I can get ten percent more down the road. And I think at that point, that this is where. In my view, innovation you know plays a key part. It's when does the compensation, the total raw professional, say to the executives, guys, this is it. This is the bound. This we're not we're not going any further than that. If we can't attract the right talent, paying ninety fifth percentile, well, <laughs> you know, we're not going to go. But yeah, well, what what are we supposed to do? Do we just accept that? And and that's the thing. I think yeah, sometimes it's a bit of an ego you know, uh, an ego issue for firms saying, what do you mean we can't afford this person? We're this, you know, we're a top rated firm. What do you mean we can't afford them? You know, I think and that I, I've had to sort of educate clients that used to be in, let's say 2019, a, a top rate market payer, but through the pandemic and now on the other side of this, are now 20% behind market rate. And it's a horrible question or a horrible point to bring back to clients saying, it's not that you're cheap, it's just you've fallen behind without even noticing. And it's not a conscientious issue. It's not a cost saving. It's just you now need to redefine your boundaries. And I think, yeah, it's a bit of an issue in the market. Yeah. Um, but um, look, um, in terms of the other thing I wanted to touch on, there's a few other questions I had. Um, and I haven't talked about this, this in any of the podcasts. Um, comp round, right? Okay. <laughs> Everyone we all groan, you know, we all sigh, we all sit there and go, God, this is gonna be a nightmare, you know, and the bigger the business, sometimes the bigger the nightmare. But the the constant thing is that for two to three months of the year, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be hell, you know, it's gonna be late nights, there's gonna be issues, there's gonna be back and forwards and unhappy people, happy people, the bonus pool's not where it needs to be, amendments, you name it. Um, And, you know, there's a couple of questions I have on that. Does it always have to be a nightmare? Number one, does it always have to take three, two to three months, number two? Um, and the point on that, before you answer those, Mark, is that I had a, a head of um, HR technology um, who was uh, on the phone to me as part of a conference call we were discussing to hire a head of total reward. And this head of HR technology for this very large financial services firm said, I want to get comp round down to two days. Um, now, I mean, obviously, aside from trying not to laugh, um, two days, you know, I was like, well, just, just, just ridiculous. You know, that's, that's not possible. But then I started thinking, well, maybe it is. Maybe it is a question. If you get everything lined up, you can knock it out of the park in two days. But what do you think, Mark? Always a nightmare. Does it have to take so long? Tell me what your thoughts. I, I would say the two day is a unicorn. <laughs> it's just not, it just doesn't exist. It's not possible. Never, never, it's never going to happen. I mean, I, I can't imagine a scenario that happens. Will it always be a nightmare? Um, well, it depends on how you define nightmare. And I'm not trying to be cute, but if a night, I think for me, the way I interpret that is, is it always going to require, can I just execute? Can mm. I just go and execute? Yeah. And the answer is no, you're never going to be able to execute. The comp budgets, like bonus pools, they're big dollar amounts. Mm. You're never going to just be able to blindly go execute that there's always going to have to be feedback from from the finance teams and the cfo it's going to have to be on the budgets 
you're going to have to rely on the, the data experts, the people that run the data mm. to ensure that people are, you know, bucketed correctly, right, for purposes of whose budget it hits when, you know, in terms of how the, the numbers roll up through the company. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be people with seats at the table. Yeah. And that inevitably adds time and and, and will slow down that process. Mm. Um, can it be faster? Does it need to be three months? I don't think that's the case, but I think it requires a couple of things. One, I think one, you have to really automate things. Yeah. And in order to automate that, that again, that gets back to the data, the systems, you have to basically have a one-stop shop where the data is contained in a system where you can also run thorough reports, do analysis, do modeling all in the same system with the same data set yeah. with a cl clean batch of data. Yep. The second thing it requires is I think it requires a culture throughout the company mm. and it's got to be led from the top down mm. because if you try to instill it at like the VP level, but you know, the guys at the top are not, don't operate the same way, it's going to all get bogged down at that point. Because it's a bottom up. All of these comp processes are bottom up. They roll from the bottom to the top. Yep. Um, and so you're going to get a log jam. So it's got to be from the top down. And what I mean by that, it's got to be almost a culture of this is our process and we expect everyone to follow it. And it's a self-service type of culture, meaning there's a system. You go in, you've been allocated a task. You have X number of days to complete that task. It goes for a very short review period because it's the data and the reporting is very tight. Mm. And then after that, it's for a final review and it's completed. Mm -hmm. It almost would have to be something like that. To the extent, the more, obviously, the more, the more leaders that you have that are approvers, mm. that takes time. Mm. If there's not that self-service mindset where a leader is going to say, oh, I need to have my HR person sit down with me and go through these one by one, mm -hmm. well, that's where your time is added. Mm. And then when you ask for exceptions, oh, well, so-and-so is a special employee and they're great. They deserve more, yeah. but I can't get the numbers to add up. Give me an exception. Mm. Oh, that all bogs the process down. And, and, and I think that's why, you know, it's, it's at least two months. That's why it's two months, two to three months. Um, you'd have to eliminate almost all of those exceptions and really have an automated self-service type of model. Mm. And then I think you can really, you can really cut down on the time, but how many large public companies are going to go to a fully automated self-service model? No, I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, I think what I'm taking from that, I mean, the, there's one big element here that factors into any comment is the human element. You're dealing with people, you know, you can't automate a process with you know dealing with scenarios um you know that that affect people on a mass scale um there's always room for conversation maneuver and there's always a check double check rethink um yeah it's a it's a people related process that maybe just can't be shortened because that would be almost being slapdash you know around it if you just suddenly clicked a bunch of numbers and said right that's cop round done you know it just wouldn't work Interesting. All right. Um, conscious we're running out of time, but Mark, um, my last question, and I, I did, I did tell you I was going to ask you this, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to ask everyone moving forward this. But your, I want your funniest 
compensation related work anecdote um, if there is such a thing um, but <laughs> to put you on the spot but I'm interested give me your, your give me a, a funny compensation story I'll probably have some that I that I can't share <laughs> um, one that I will share uh, it related when we were I guess earlier in my career I was we were working on selling a business and we were terminating some executives in Spain and you know it was we talked with our attorneys to make sure we understood what was going on and you know would say hey this is what we want to do does that comply can we do this can we not do it and then then we would set up a call later on with the opposing side and talk with the executives attorneys and 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 you know their reps and it was really interesting because every time we would call our person, hmm. the background music where we were waiting was very like, you know, da 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 It was like <laughs> or like Catalan guitar. And it yeah, was like yeah. really like, all right, this is gonna go pretty good. And then every time we would call the other um, the executives, you know, lawyers and reps, it was just drudgery. The music was just so bad. It was almost like it foreshadowed. It was like I, a couple of times it was like Ravel's Bolero. <laughs> And we were on hold for like 10 minutes. And I was like, oh my gosh, we can't do this. We just got to reschedule. I can't take another, you know, five minutes of Bolero. I can't do it. So we got to have to reschedule. And and it happened multiple times. And, and it wasn't always Bolero, but it was always something else. That so was dark like, and omniscient. Oh. Yeah, um, yeah, so it's, yeah it's, and it was almost like foreshadowing how the calls would be. It was like we'd have bright music and, you know, and then, and then it was something that was just like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> So yeah, I like it, it, it happened enough where it was like like a running joke when we would get on the call. So I like that. I like that. That's a good one. That's a, that's that's a, yeah. Because I have worried about asking this question whether I can you know I'm putting people on the spot with inappropriate anecdotes. But I like that one. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, Mark, uh, uh, thank you so much for your time uh, today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think we've covered some great ground. Um, and yeah, I look forward to, to feedback from our listeners and. As always, listeners, if anyone has any uh, thoughts, feedback, or messages, feel free to reach out to myself. But thank you again, Mark. Thanks, Jamie. I enjoyed, enjoyed participating with you.